Allow me to start on a personal note by way of introduction to our text this morning. Several times through the years I have been asked the question, what is the most discouraging thing about being in vocational ministry? I probably have answered the question differently each time I've been asked, depending on what I happen to be going through at that time in my life and ministry. But if I were to have to boil it all down to something specific, I would have to actually give two answers. What is the most discouraging thing about being in vocational ministry? Number one, number one is this. People who choose to live and behave at a lower level than they should based upon their spiritual position, knowledge, and experience. That is devastating to me. That is heart-wrenching to me. Whenever I hear of or see long-time Christians doing something wrong, something they know they shouldn't be doing, or, or saying something that is completely unacceptable, it really burdens me because I know that they ought to know better. That is so much more discouraging than seeing a new Christian or a young Christian fall into sin. Whenever older Christians, and I'm not just referring to age when I say that, I'm talking about people who have known the Lord for a, a time, whenever older Christians willfully choose to sin in action or attitude or word, it really, really grieves my heart. This can be done somewhere in the community. This takes place in the home uh, or even in a Bible study or a Sunday school class. That may be the most discouraging thing about being in the ministry. But the second one follows closely on its heels. Number two is being misunderstood by people or being falsely accused. That really hurts. When you are in vocational ministry, there are people, for whatever reason, who want to discredit you and your ministry. I'm talking about fellow Christians, and that's what hurts. Now, we should expect that kind of thing from unbelievers, from people outside the family of God, but it really hurts when it's from other Christians. This pain runs very deep because... To be trusted and believed and considered faithful to the word in life and in teaching is the stock and trade of the ministry. That's really what the ministry is all about. So when you enter vocational ministry early in life, as I did, then the goal is to lay a foundation of integrity and credibility so that when you speak, people will believe you and trust you. If you don't have that, you really don't have a ministry. That's why Paul said to Timothy, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Young people in vocational ministry are suspect, and probably rightly so. Therefore, you work hard at being faithful to the Word in life and in teaching. And that's why it's so hard 
to be misunderstood or falsely accused. Because you know, you understand, that people can cause a lot of damage to something you have worked for years to establish. It only takes an off-the-cuff remark or a thoughtless statement to cause irreparable damage to your testimony or your reputation. Those kinds of personal attacks are not easy to take. And it really doesn't get any easier as you get older. Not only are young people suspect in vocational ministry today, so is everybody. That's probably the case because of all the scandals that have taken place through the years by high-profile Christian leaders. And maybe the term Christian, in many cases, should be put in quotes because they don't even really know the Lord themselves. But it is a fact that scandals have always been a part of organized religion. And that's why it is so important for spiritual leaders to be above reproach in life and in teaching. And if you care a great deal about being above reproach, it's extremely difficult to have people misunderstand you and falsely accuse you. Now, why am I saying all this? Is this something I'm going through at the present time? Not that I know of, thankfully. But that is exactly what the Apostle Paul deals with in our text this morning in Philippians chapter 1. So let's turn there together, if you are not already there, to Philippians chapter 1. And please follow along as I read verses 15 through 18. Just a a side note at this point, I usually, as you know, usually preach from the New King James Version. That's the version that's in the Uh, hymn book holder there. So if you grab that Bible, that's a a New King James Version. But this morning, I'm going to be using the New American Standard Bible for various reasons. So if you're using the King James Version or the New King James Version, don't get lost because as you'll see, verses 16 and 17 will be reversed in your version. They are just flip-flopped. So with that in mind, please follow along as I begin reading in verse 15 of Philippians chapter 1. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter, here's where the switch is in the King James, New King James, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. It's very important that we understand what Paul is dealing with in this section of Scripture, because I'm afraid that many people do not understand what is being said here. So please listen closely as we talk about what is and what is not being said. I have heard many people through the years use this passage of Scripture to say that we should never say anything against people or churches or ministry groups that teach false doctrine. Here's the attitude that is often expressed. We should just rejoice like Paul did that at least they're talking about Jesus. 
That's what many people would suggest. A few years ago, we had a very dear family leave our church over this specific issue. When people in our church, including myself, reached out to them to talk to them about why they left, they said they left because occasionally I would mention a group or a person by name and tell why their teaching was inaccurate. You see, some people believe it is unloving and wrong and inappropriate to do that. And many of those people who feel that way try to use this text as support. They will say things like this. But Paul rejoiced when people preached things he didn't agree with. So should we. Paul rejoiced when people preached things that were not true. So should we. Don't be so narrow. Don't be so dogmatic. At least Jesus is being preached, even if everything that's being said isn't true about him and about the gospel. Now, beloved, again, I would say that is how a lot of people take this passage. So in order to get it clear in our minds, let's start by seeing what, by seeing what this passage is not talking about. It is not talking about rejoicing when people preach error. Let me say that again. This is not talking about rejoicing when people preach error or heresy. Paul never rejoiced in error. Certainly Paul never rejoiced in heresy or in people preaching error or heresy. In this very same letter, we see his attitude toward those who promoted error. Just skip over to chapter 3, verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here in this text, Paul drew a sharp contrast between himself and those who taught heresy. In verse 2, he gave a sober warning, and he called these false teachers dogs, evil workers, and mutilators. Skip down to verse 17. Chapter 3, same chapter, but verse 17. He says, Brethren, join in following my example... And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are actually enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. You don't see any rejoicing in this passage. Paul never rejoiced in heresy and those who promoted heresy. In fact, in verse 18, he says that these people were enemies of the cross of Christ. And understand that when Paul says these things, he's talking about people who preach and teach religion. He's not just saying this about people who are outside the realm of religion and simply teach in the secular realm and promote secularism or human philosophies. This, this is a religious context. Back up to 2 Corinthians 11 to see this. Go back to the left. After the four Gospels, we have the book of Acts, then Romans, 
than First and Second Corinthians. Look at Second Corinthians, chapter eleven, verse two. <clears throat> Paul says, "For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin." But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Sounds like today. You put up with this. You accept it. You say, oh, this is fine. This is no big deal. They're, at least they're talking about Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the gospel, even if it doesn't line up exactly with what Scripture says. Skip down to verse 13, same chapter. Verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Please notice that Paul referred to these people as false apostles, deceitful workers, and Satan's ministers. There's no rejoicing here. And please notice again that Paul is referring to people who traffic in the realm of religion and doctrine. Look at the next book of the New Testament, the book of Galatians, chapter 1. It's only a few pages over to the right. Galatians, chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Now maybe you wonder, Paul, did you mean to say it that strongly? I mean, that's pretty strong language. Uh, do you want to reword that? Verse 9. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. This shows us Paul's attitude toward erroneous teaching of the gospel and toward false teachers. Paul says, let them be accursed. Let them be anathema. Let them be damned. That's the word here. 1 Timothy 4 gives us more insight into this. Keep turning to the right, past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Again, those are strong words to express Paul's attitude toward distortion of the truth. 
He says the source of such doctrine is demonic. That is strong. Demonic. Do you know any religions that forbid some of their people to marry and forbid eating certain foods God has created? It's demonic doctrine from deceitful spirits, says the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. One more passage just to illustrate the point further. 2 Timothy chapter 4. The next letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, but you be sober in all things. Again, Paul uses strong language to express the importance of preaching the truth and not preaching error, not preaching what people want to hear, to have their ears tickled, but preaching God's truth. He calls error fables or myths. And he says people who listen to error just want to have their ears tickled. So my point in taking us through these passages is to reinforce the point that Paul never advocated putting up with false doctrine. By the way, neither did John the apostle of love. Second John 10 says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, and in the context he's talking about accurate teaching about Christ and the gospel. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Beloved, there is a healthy and righteous kind of dogmatism. If you have been around here any length of time at all, then you know that I regularly caution us about being narrow where we don't need to be narrow, being uh, abrasive, being unnecessarily uh, firm in our convictions. Never would I advocate that kind of thing. But there is a healthy and righteous kind of dogmatism. Paul and John both taught that, as well as Peter and Jude and the rest of the writers of the New Testament. It's not that people have to dot every I and cross every T as we do theologically. We're not talking about things like the timing of the rapture and your view on the extent of the atonement. We're talking about things that if you believe them, they will damn you to hell. We're talking about foundational teachings about Christ and the gospel of Christ and the means of salvation. Those are non-negotiable. Now back to our text in Philippians chapter 1. So I show you those passages because it's extremely important that we not make the critical mistake of thinking that in verses 15 through 18 of Philippians chapter 1, Paul is rejoicing in inaccurate, erroneous teaching about Jesus Christ. Three times in this text, Paul emphatically states that these people were preaching Christ. They were not preaching an aberration about Christ or a distortion of Christ. They were preaching Christ. 
the truth about him. So the, the detractors in this passage were preaching the truth. Now maybe you're scratching your head at this point saying, then what was their error if it wasn't in doctrine? If they weren't preaching error, what's the problem here? What is Paul talking about? Their error was in their motives and their attitudes toward Paul. That's the issue in this text. What Paul is dealing with here is the attitudes of other Christians toward him and his imprisonment. Remember, as we saw last week, Paul is telling his friends, the Philippians, the effects of what had happened as a result of his imprisonment. In verse 13, he told the effect on the praetorium. Many soldiers and high-ranking officials were turning to Christ. In verse 14, he told the effect on timid believers. Many believers were becoming bold to speak about Christ. Then in verses 15 through 18, he tells the effect on preachers of the gospel. So he is telling here in chapter 1, he is telling about how various people responded to his imprisonment. In verses 15 through 18, he has in mind preachers of the gospel. Last week, I mentioned that the word in verse 14 for speak is a word that means everyday conversation. It's not a word for preaching. But the word used here in verse 15 is the word for proclamation. Some of those who stepped forward in Paul's absence were preaching the gospel with good motives, a good attitude toward Paul, and some were preaching the gospel with a bad attitude toward Paul and improper motives. Notice what he says in verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The first group Paul mentions here in verse 15 was the group that was jealous of his ministry, jealous of his support, his giftedness, his effectiveness, his authority, his position, his popularity and success in the right sense of those terms. They were jealous of the love Paul was receiving while he was incarcerated. Jealous of the attention he was getting. Remember, as we saw a few verses ago, Paul was the talk of the town. His situation was, was a big issue in Rome. Why is this guy here? What's this about his case? What, what's going on? He, he was getting a lot of attention. Maybe before Paul came to town as a prisoner, they were getting the attention. But now Paul was the focus. All the believers in Rome were talking about Paul and his situation. And the result was that some Christians, Christian leaders, Christian preachers, were jealous of Paul, so they tried to produce strife and turn people against him. Imagine that. How could people do that? If you know the answer, please tell me afterwards. Some Christians were actually trying to produce strife and turn people against Paul. Lenski writes this, quote, Many of this type have appeared in the church who are envious because God has given greater gifts and more influential positions to other men. They feel thrust into the background. Their authority and their following have been reduced. Hence they carp, find fault, raise strife. The fact that Rome had some of these causes little wonder. Not only had Paul been prominent and successful from the start, all Rome was now talking about him. All this irked them. 
People always quoting Paul, praising Paul. Were there not also other men in Rome, meaning themselves? Well, they would show Paul and everybody else. They would preach Christ with such vim as to draw all eyes on themselves and away from Paul, end quote. That's what was going on in the minds and hearts of some. They were preaching the truth, but in their hearts, they're competing with Paul. I want to be a better preacher than Paul. I want to be liked more than Paul, followed more than Paul. They were jealous of him, and they were basically competing for his supporters. But some preached from goodwill, according to the end of verse 15. The Greek term here means contentment or satisfaction. It's a word that's related to one's self. In other words, some people were content or satisfied with the gifts God had given them and the position God had given them and the, the ministry God had given them. They weren't trying to compete with Paul. It's the furthest thing from their minds. There's no com- competitive spirit, no jealousy. They knew their role and they were satisfied with it. But others were not. Others wanted to usurp Paul's unique influence as an apostle. Their motive seems to have been closely related to what Peter told elders not to do in 1 Peter 5, and that is not to lord it over God's people. In other words, Peter says, don't try to grab a position just so you can have authority or power or prestige or prominence or popularity. Some of the preachers in Rome were guilty of that, but not all of them. Verse 16 Paul says, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Now, the the King James Version and the New King James Version reverse the order here. So if you're using one of those versions, skip to verse 17, then it'll read the same. And we'll come back to 16 in your version. So verse 16 in NASB and the others, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. One group was preaching Christ out of love. Out of love for Christ, out of love for Paul, out of love for the gospel, out of love for the truth. They knew that Paul was there in Rome as a prisoner by God's sovereign design to testify the gospel to the imperial elite in the Roman Empire. They knew Paul was there out of his love for the church and how that had caused him problems back in Jerusalem on Temple Mount when he was arrested and that led to his incarceration and that led to them taking him out to Caesarea by the sea and holding him there for a couple years and eventually appealing to Rome and he goes to Rome and he's there two years. They understood all that. Their attitudes toward Paul, their attitudes were right. They weren't trying to turn people against Paul. They weren't trying to undermine his ministry or compete with him or plant doubts in people's minds about him. But some were amazing. Verse 17, the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition. Now notice, not error. They preach Christ, but the motive is wrong. Out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. The word selfish ambition was a word that came to mean playing politics for your own benefit. It is a political term that means to get people to support you. You do what you do to get people to support you, to get people on your side. 
That's what Paul's detractors were doing. That's, that's what his critics were doing. They were trying to get people on their side and don't look to Paul. They were preaching the truth, preaching the gospel, preaching the word accurately, but undermining Paul to get people to support them and follow them. They were doctrinally sound. Again, I know I'm repeating this, but this is not about doctrine. They were doctrinally sound, but they were promoting themselves by casting aspersions on Paul. So what were they saying about Paul? He doesn't tell us specifically in this text, and I think that's because he doesn't want to be self-serving or come across as bitter, but I don't think it would be too hard to guess what they were saying. Here are some possibilities. Some were probably saying there's sin in Paul's life. So God is chastising him by keeping him in prison. That's why he's there. If the truth were really known, Paul's living a double life. God must be chastening him for a secret sin that hasn't surfaced yet in public. If he would just repent, then maybe God would let him out of prison. That's one possibility as to what was being said. Or maybe they were saying something like this. Paul doesn't have enough faith to be delivered. That's the problem. If he had enough faith, he would just walk right out of that situation. He would name it and claim it and bind the demons who are holding him in prison. He has a weak faith. That's his problem. That's what some today would be saying if the situation were being lived out in our time. Here's another possibility of what they were saying. God is setting Paul on the shelf. Because his ministry is over now, and God wants people to look to us. He's had his day. He was a great servant of God in his prime, but, but now he's sort of peaked. He's peaked out, and, and he's past his time of maximum usefulness. Look to us now. We're, we're Paul's replacements. This is God's way of pointing you to us, putting Paul in prison, and now we have the spotlight. Here's another possibility of what they were saying. Paul must be compromising or playing politics because if he were standing bold, he would have been martyred by now. He's not letting God work out his sovereign plan. He's resisting God by appealing to Caesar and stretching out the case. What's he doing here in Rome? He should never appeal to Caesar. He should still be back Caesarea by the sea, back in Israel. He shouldn't try to delay the inevitable. He ought to just submit to God's will and not try to change things on a human level by going through all these legal proceedings and all these trials. Maybe all those things were being said about Paul or maybe a combination of all of them. And these people who were saying these things knew that Paul couldn't do anything about it. So in that sense, they were, to use Paul's words here, supposing to add affliction to his chains, or thinking to cause him distress in his imprisonment. They thought their success would make Paul envious of them and would make him chafe in his confinement, which prevented him from competing with them. But they underestimated him. Paul would not stoop to that level. He knew their motives, but you know what? He knew they were preaching the truth. They were preaching the gospel. So what was his response to all of this? Verse 18. He says, what then? What's my response? How do I view this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth. Now, don't get confused there. Truth of motive. still motive. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ 
is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. The word pretense here means false motive. It doesn't mean they were pretending to believe the gospel or they were pretending to preach the gospel. No, no, no. It's not the issue here. These preachers believed the gospel. They preached the gospel. They presented the gospel, but their motives were not pure. Motive is the issue all the way through here, not content. And since the doctrinal content was solid, Paul could rejoice even though some were trying to win followers from him to themselves. Now, he didn't rejoice in their motives. Certainly was not pleased with their motives. But he did rejoice that they were preaching the truth about Christ, that people were hearing the word of God. He didn't rejoice that they were creating strife or division in the body because this undoubtedly brought him great grief. He didn't approve of envy, jealousy, or causing strife. Look at chapter 2, what he will say in just a few more verses. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation in love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, Intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but, is, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That shows us that Paul did not improve of envy and jealousy and causing strife. He specifically says that in verse 3. But he did rejoice that Christ was being preached and that Christ was being preached accurately. He knew that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He knew that the message of the gospel of Christ is powerful if it is preached accurately, even when it's preached from a vessel that has wrong motives. Surely you've seen this in a limited way in your your own life, your own exposure. Maybe there are times when someone shares the gospel with another person simply out of a guilt trip because he's been told that if you don't share the gospel five times this week, then you're in sin. So this person, not with the right motives, but just out of guilt, shares the gospel and someone comes to Christ because what was shared was accurate. It was biblical. Maybe the motive was wrong, but the message was right. Paul understood that. Paul understood how God uses his truth even when the, 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 the motive isn't all that it should be. Now, that doesn't make it right. Paul doesn't excuse or justify the attitudes of these preachers. But he did rejoice that the truth about Christ was being preached, even though the truth about himself wasn't being told. Paul knew that God knew the truth about his situation, so he could rejoice in spite of the detractors. Boy, is that hard to do. One Puritan writer put it this way, quote, God is the most powerful asserter of our innocency. Therefore, it is best to deal with God about it, and prayer proves a better vindication than self-defense, end quote. Paul knew that. That's why, even though I'm sure it hurt him that people were doing this to him, he could still rejoice Because what mattered to him most was the exaltation of Christ. 
He could take the personal attacks. He could handle them. They were hurtful. They, they weren't easy. But he could handle the personal attacks far easier than he could have handled the thought while he's incarcerated that people are out there preaching error, preaching heresy. That would have made him chafe. That would have really stolen his joy. But this, people preaching the truth, even though their motives weren't right, Paul could rejoice. So this section of Philippians is all about how to handle personal attacks. How do you handle personal attacks? False accusations and unfair treatment. Or maybe I should reword that question. How should we handle personal attacks, false accusations, and unfair treatment? Not only does this passage help us answer that question, so does 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn over there with me, please, to near the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter 2 tells us how we're supposed to handle those kinds of things. Paul wasn't the only apostle to be falsely accused or be attacked personally by people for whatever motives. Peter, as a leader, had surely faced that as well. And notice what he says. This is quite a powerful statement if you remember what Peter's personality had been as a young man. Fiery, zealous, going to stand up for you know, his rights or whatever. But notice what he says after years of maturity and after years of being tempered and being nurtured by the grace of God. Notice 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. We'll begin there. He says in verse 19, For this finds favor. Literally grace. This is a fascinating passage. For this is grace. Most of our English translations. This finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows, when suffering unjustly. Don't skip past that verse too quickly. This finds favor before the sake of conscience toward God. Some English translations say, because of being conscious of God. That's really powerful. Because you're conscious of God, you're thinking about God. This raises the question, is it possible for a Christian not to be conscious of God? Well, surely you know the answer to that. I mean, beloved, there are times when we say things and we do things and God is the furthest thing from our minds. We're not always conscious of God. But Peter says here, this is grace. This, this finds favor for the sake of conscience toward God or, or the sake of being conscious of God. A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? Patient endurance. You have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin... Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now watch this. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Then what did he do? But kept entrusting himself to him who judges 
righteously. The hymn is capitalized there. Entrusting himself, that is God, entrusting himself to, and kept entrusting himself to God. Isn't that tough to do? That is really tough to do. When we are falsely accused and suffer wrongfully, we are exhorted to commit ourselves to the one who judges righteously. God knows the truth. Take it to him. Entrust yourself to his righteous judgment and ask him not to let it steal your joy. You say, that's not natural, Brian. That's right. It's not natural. Only God and his grace can produce that kind of response in us and give us that kind of attitude. But remember, Paul was human too. He wasn't a machine. He wasn't a robot. Paul was human. And if God's grace could produce that kind of response in him, then God's grace can produce that kind of response in us. Let's ask him to give us that kind of attitude as we close this morning. Please bow your head with me. As we bow together here at the close of the message and the close of our service, I want to begin our closing comments by saying if you are here today without a relationship to Jesus Christ, then there's no way you could have the kind of grace and strength needed to live this way. So the starting point for you is to see your need, acknowledge your need, in this very moment, right where you are seated there in the quietness of your own heart, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, forgive your sins, and to be your Lord and Savior. And if you are a child of God, if you know Jesus Christ, then ask for the grace to live the way Paul expresses in Philippians 1, the way Peter expresses here in 1 Peter 2, because this is not natural. It's not natural at all. So call out to God for grace. Say, Lord, this is, this is beyond me. I can't, I can't live this way in my own strength. This is beyond me. So I ask you, by your grace, by your strength, enable me to live life this way to handle attacks this way, to, to demonstrate Christ in me when I walk through something like this. Father, that is our prayer because we readily acknowledge, we readily acknowledge that this is foreign to us in our humanness, in our flesh. And that's why we need your grace. So we humble ourselves before you, acknowledging our weakness acknowledging our need and ask that you would grant us grace to represent Christ in the midst of adverse circumstances, unfair treatment, unjust suffering, as both Paul and Peter speak of in these texts. And in closing, Father, we want to pray for anyone who is here with us this morning who can't call on you as their father because they do not have your son, Jesus Christ, personally as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit make them aware of that May it be clear, abundant, obvious that they have no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And may they humble themselves before you this very moment and in simple childlike faith call out to the Lord Jesus to save them, to forgive them, to grant them your glorious salvation. We pray these things in his precious and matchless name. Amen.